Father, we just uh, we thank you for uh, another day. Lord, even though it's a dreary uh, day outside, we do thank you for the rain. Um, how often we forget just the, the benefit of rain and um, especially the times of drought, Lord, we realize just how important uh, the rain is. So we just thank you for that, your provision there. We just pray for uh, all of our opportunities for ministry today, for our uh, kids downstairs and youth as they hear from your word, as we get to study your word this morning uh, and this time as we look to Genesis, as we think to our service in a little bit, continuing our study in Colossians and uh, getting to worship you through singing, through fellowship with one another, through being attentive to your word. And then our ministries tonight, God, our opportunity to really reach out into the community with kids and with youth and just share the gospel, share basic things, and interact with people that may not be uh, part of a church family or may not be uh, believers even. So, God, we just lift all these opportunities up to you today. Uh, we just thank you for the privilege we have to minister uh, to, to various age groups in all these different ways and all these different settings. And so, God, we lift all of these up to you and pray that you would uh, bless them, that you would help us to seek you first in each of these areas. And God, we just uh, pray that today we would worship you, that we would uh, see you uh, in all your glory, that we may uh, tremble in fear, but also lift up our heads and realize the love that you've shown to us through Jesus. And so God, may everything we do today be to your honor, to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're picking up in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, we saw last week... Uh, just the continuation of the results, the consequences of the fall, as we saw Cain and Abel, uh, two of the first siblings, again, first children of Adam and Eve, we think um, probably had a few others in that time frame, but the first two mentioned, and that dynamic between Cain and Abel, that he was jealous, his heart was not right to the Lord, and so when he saw his brother Abel's offering, out of his jealousy, even though God gave him an opportunity to respond and turn from that uh, hard attitude, he instead continued to have the path of sin, and, and it led to murder. And we saw his consequences were to be a wanderer over the earth, and we left off there <clears throat> in verse 16 last week, as Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which is just the word means wandering, um, seems to be expressing that he uh, experienced that consequence from the Lord of, of having to wander the earth. And so we come to verse 17 this morning, we see further, and what we're going to see this morning is uh, Cain's descendants, but also we're going to see a contrast with the descendants of Seth uh, here at the end of chapter 4. So let's dive in. Let me just read verses 17 to 26, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, uh, our son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see here again, we're going to see a contrast between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And this really paints a picture, as we're going to see, of increasing corruption, increasing hostility between those who are putting their faith in in God and those who are uh, just following after violence and sin. And that, of course, leads eventually to the flood. But let's go back to verse 17, and we'll just walk through this kind of verse by verse, okay? So first of all, we pick up here, uh, Cain knows his wife. Uh, This phrase, knew or knowing, of course, in Scripture many times is speaking of uh, sexual intercourse. And so uh, Cain has a wife, they conceive a child. And uh, it seems most likely, I think we touched on this last week, that Cain was probably married Prior to killing Abel, it's hard to imagine that uh, he was able to find a wife or take a wife after murdering Abel, his brother. So it seems likely that he was probably married before this happened. But we have to take a step further back and ask one of the questions that people ask as they go through Genesis, and especially this part. But um, the question I want to ask is, who was Cain's wife? Okay, so who is this, this wife? She's not named. Who, who is this wife of Cain? Okay, how do you know that? Right, it's most likely it was probably his sister. It also could have been a close descendant, like a niece, something like that, if maybe he had a, another brother or sister that married and, you know, he married. But at the end of the day, it's some kind of close relation, right? Again, this is pretty recent. Um, when we look at chapter 5, and you see more detail about when Seth was born. He was born when Adam was 130 years old. And the way that he, the way that even in this passage talks about when Seth's born, Eve uh, names him, and, and her the name is after the fact that God has given her another son to replace Abel. So it seems likely that uh, that was probably a recent event in her mind. So somewhere in a scope of 130 years is probably when how long people Adam and Eve had lived up to this point of. Uh, Cain killing his brother Abel. And so you think 130 years, there's a lot of children that can be born. There's a lot of grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren um, in that time period of 130 years. So, and you've got to think, this is pretty close to the fall. There's not as much corruption as what we experience today. So in all likelihood, the people were, women were very fertile in this day and age. There probably wasn't as much as we see today of miscarriages, things like that. There, of course, wasn't um, any way to prevent pregnancy. So you got to imagine the population probably grew pretty quickly. I mean, I was thinking this week, um, my wife's grandma um, has, of course, has great-grandchildren, but her uh, oldest great-grandchild's getting ready to have a baby. So right there, there's going to be, if she tarries in a, f- a few more months, then there's going to be five generations just in an 80-year span you think about, you know, how many, how many uh, people that is. So population would have increased pretty rapidly. And so Cain, again, would have probably married either his sister or a close relative 
Um, now, when we say that, what is the first kind of reaction we have when we hear that Cain married his sister, married a very close relation? Ooh, okay. Why is that? Why is our reaction ooh? Okay, what we call incest, right? So let's take a step back, and me asking this question is in no way insinuating that it's not wrong. It's just let's unpack this. Why is incest wrong? So this is a, a critique that you know some people in the world have is that, oh, Cain Mary's sister, that's incest, and the Bible says incest is wrong, so you know, here's just a, a way that Scripture doesn't line up. So why, why is, let's take a step back, why is incest wrong? Right. Yep. So there's a natural side of it that today, when two people that have that share too many genetic similarities uh, marry and have offspring, there's a lot of genetic mutations. There's a lot of issues like Down syndrome can be something that happens. Other things that happen because their genetics are so closely linked um, in that way. Okay. What What's another reason incest is wrong? There's I thought of two, and so that's the first one I thought of was there's a natural aspect of the results to the offspring, but what else? Okay, ultimately, anything is wrong because God said it's wrong, right? And things are right because God says they're right. So there's a spiritual aspect as well that God's commanded that that's wrong, okay? Now, has that command been given to this point? No. In fact, you don't see it later till Leviticus, to the days of Moses. Leviticus 18 is where it talks about not having those close marriages and things like that. Um, but in Genesis here, of course, that's the only means for reproduction. Um, when we go further even to Noah, and you know they're repopulating the earth, Noah and his wife, and they have three sons, three wives. There would have again been had to be close uh, marriages between offspring to repopulate the earth. In fact, when you go even to the... Uh, the patriarchs, you see Abraham marrying his half-sister, and you see Isaac marrying uh, his first cousin, things like that. So prior to the law being given, this was not declared as wrong. Okay, Now let's step back as well and talk about the natural aspect of it. I think because Adam and Eve would have possessed so much genetic information, you've got to think about this. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, and every person is. Scripture tells us we're all of one blood, and so... Think about all the genetic variants within the human race, okay? Eye color, hair color, skin color, you know, big nose, little nose, big ears, little, you know, all these genetic uh, pieces, all this DNA was contained within Adam and Eve. And so when, their first, when they would have had their first children, there probably would have been a lot of variants between even their children. There wouldn't have been, you know, we sometimes think probably because we're white, Adam and Eve were white and their kids were white. No, they might have been somewhere middle tone and maybe they had a child that was darker skin and a child that was lighter skin and one with blue eyes and one with brown you know all these variations and so i think what you have when you get to the tower of babel is when those uh people that are closely uh, have a lot of the same genetic information start to get together then you start to see those similarities kind of uh pan out that way so in this day and age i don't think there would have been the uh circumstances of have an offspring like there are today with close relations, okay? So because there's so much genetic variance, it wouldn't have had the issues we have today. So I think there's an easy way to understand why naturally 
it wouldn't have been an issue. And then also, again, God has not commanded to this point that it is wrong. Okay? Uh, any other thoughts about uh, Cain's wife before we move on to the next half of the verse? Okay, hopefully that helps, helps us to think through this a little bit. So, uh, he knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son named Enoch. Okay, so we see here um, Cain's, you know, first child, it seems. And uh, it is important to note this isn't the same Enoch we see in chapter 5, who is the one that famously walked with God and then he was taken away. He was just, he didn't exist. It's like he, he was uh, raptured in a sense. He never died. This is not the same Enoch. That's, of course, an Enoch mentioned in the line of Seth. The same is true with Lamech. Lamech is actually the name of Noah's father, but it's not the same Lamech mentioned here. So you have a couple similarities in names between Cain's line and Seth's line, so it's important to know those aren't the same person, and you clearly see that because we're talking about Cain's line here and in chapter 5, Seth's line. Okay, So this is Enoch, a different Enoch that Cain has, and we see here that he decides to build a city and name the city after his son Enoch. And Enoch actually means initiated or inaugurated. So it almost feels as though Cain is seeing the birth of this child and probably the establishment of this city is almost a new, a new step, a new birth, a, a fresh start in a sense. Um, you know, we could debate, is this Cain being disobedient to God's consequences of, you know, he's supposed to wander and instead he's settling somewhere, he's building a city. Maybe he started the city and wandered away and it was finished later, we're not sure, but we see this idea of him building a city and naming it after his son, Enoch. And this is the first mention of a city in all of Scripture as well, so that's important to note. Then we come to verse 18, and we see through 18 to 22, sort of a line of Cain's descendants, okay? Uh, verse 18, Enoch has a, a son named Irad, Irad, Mahujael, Mahujael, Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So, this is the only time these people um, before Lamech are mentioned anywhere in Scripture. We don't have any details about their life. Um, the only maybe important thing to note is that at least with um, Mahujael and Methushael, you have that ending E-L, which is typically means Elohim. You know, you think about Daniel, you think about some of the people later on. That was a way, typically Israel would let people know that who their God was. So it seems as though there's almost a acknowledgement of God, even in Cain's descendants, although it may have just been superficial, maybe just for namesake, and it doesn't seem that they really had much of a relationship with God, but it's worth noting there. Um, really, it seems as though they're only mentioned to show the lineage down to Lamech, who more details given about. Okay? Um, we see Lamech mentioned there in verse... Um, 18, and Lamech means powerful, conqueror, or wild man, okay? And his name's very fitting, as we're going to see a little bit later in the text. Uh, he really lived up to his name. In verse 19, we get some details about Lamech, and what are those details in verse 19? Okay, he took two wives. So this is the first instance of bigamy, or polygamy, we could say in scripture and to this point has God has God established marriage up to this point okay yeah in chapter 2 the end of chapter 2 we saw Moses 
you, you know, really God establishes it in the creative order of Adam and Eve. But Moses, in, in explaining it probably to Israel, is saying, this is the establishment of marriage. That, that's why a man should leave his father, be joined to his wife, uh, the two become one flesh. And so it seems very clear that God has established from the beginning. And even Jesus in his day said in the beginning he made them male and female. He, established, he uh, basically says, you know, I agree with the created order. This is how God created things from the beginning. And so we see just the defiance of Lamech in this line of Cain to say, I know better, I'm going to take two wives instead of one. So you see this sense of defiance uh, among Cain's line, which makes sense as he was defiant to the Lord. So Lamech takes two wives. Uh, one is named Ada, the other Zillah. Um, Ada means ornament or beauty. Zillah means shade. It seems to express that really the most desirable aspect of these women might have been just been their outward appearance, and maybe that's why Lamech takes them as wives. Later on, it's mentioned that they have a daughter at the end of verse 22, uh, Namah, that which, which means loveliness. Again, it seems as though the names are, uh, purely speaking, maybe to outward appearance and that sort of thing. So um, we see a lot of information about Lamech's sons as well in this passage. So he takes two wives, and then it gives you some more descendants there. Verse 20, um, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So let's step back from this. What kind of skills or what kind of abilities would Jabel have had to have to be able to um, have tents, have, you know, deal with livestock, that kind of thing? What are some skills or some abilities that he would have to possess or, or grow in? Some things he'd have to know. Yes, so some biology, some different aspects of breeding, absolutely. So, and it seems to suggest when it uses that term livestock, this is more than just sheep. This is probably maybe cows, camels, different types of animals that he's able to tend. And at this point, um, God has not said that eating meat is acceptable. That's not till after the flood. Whether or not they did that, maybe that was part of their defiance. We don't know. We can't, we don't read that into the text. You know, there are other things, you know, milk and uh, coats of, of skin, things that you can use animals for. But he is the one who kind of innovated this ability to tend to livestock. But what, what else do you see there mentioned that gave him the ability to, and others the ability to move along with the livestock as they roamed uh, the fields and that kind of thing? To build tents, right? So here's what you probably think. There's probably animal skin used to do that. There's an ability to you know, I guess, build up and tear these things down. So there's some ingenuity you see in, in Jabel and some, some skill, some wisdom um, when it comes to doing this. The next one mentioned his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So what kind of skills would Jubal have to have? The lyre would be um, a, a stringed instrument. The pipe would be more, and I think some some versions maybe say flute or can't think of, there's another, uh, some other versions use a different one, but it's kind of a, a wind instrument is what we're thinking. So stringed instrument, wind instrument, what kind of abilities or skills, wisdom would Jubal have had to possess to be able to create these instruments? Yeah, there's an artistic aspect. Those of you who are really good with music know there's math involved with music. Being skilled in math can help you 
uh, with music as well. There's a craftsmanship to being able to actually build these instruments, to put the strings together. So there's a lot of skill and a lot of wisdom, you know, to just, I mean, just think about that. We're so used to having instruments, but this is, seems like the first guy to go, hey, I'm going to build a piece of wood with some strings that make these notes, and I'm going to sing along to it. So it's pretty amazing to think about the ingenuity that, that Jubal had. You've probably heard, you know, Jubilee, different things that are based on, on Jubal, who seems to be the creator of, of these first instruments. Um, it also mentions in verse 22, Zilla also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Okay, so what kind of skills would he have to have or wisdom to forge things out of bronze and iron? Right, being able to forge, take iron ore, whatever it looks like, and forge it to, to beat it out, to heat it up, whatever is involved with that. Uh, bronze is the combination of copper and tin, so just the ability. I mean, he's probably playing around with different types of metal and experimenting, so there's probably some chemistry involved in some of that. So you see just these abilities, this intelligence. It seems very likely, again, removed, not, not as uh, far removed from the fall as we are today. There probably wasn't quite the degree of corruption that we experience today. And so these were very intelligent people. I think that's what we read in this. They're very... Uh, they have a lot of ingenuity in what they're doing, a lot of wisdom. Um, it's so easy for us to think in an evolution, evolutionary sense that, you know, the original men, you know, we think of, you know, in evolution, there's cavemen or there's Neanderthals that evolved. But sometimes our mind can think that, you know, these people were not very advanced. They were pretty basic. They were, you know, making square wheels and then realizing this doesn't work. And no, they were probably a lot more intelligent than we are. Now, they didn't have the amount of knowledge we have to build upon, but they're probably way more intelligent than we are. And when you think about the fact that they lived for hundreds of years, you know, we don't know the level of technology that they reached prior to the flood, but it's not hard to think they probably had quite a bit of technology. Um, I know I had one professor who, who he thought they probably possess technology maybe even superior to what we have today um we can't read that in the text but it's not hard to imagine when you think about imagine if einstein or some of these innovators and inventors lived for hundreds of years a lot of them died and didn't finish what they were doing or you know there was so much more they could do so you imagine the intelligence of these people they're figuring things out they're living for hundreds of years they definitely weren't just living in, in caves and, you know, making square wheels, right? So you see the, these abilities, this ingenuity, okay? Um, so the, the thing I think I want us to see it here as well when we think about the line of Cain is that there's a big focus as well on human achievements, right? There's a mention of this guy, he's the inventor of this. This guy did this. He's the one that... So you see the, the focus here in Cain's descendants upon their human achievement. And then it kind of increases here in verse 23 and 24 where you see Lamech's pride. Um, let me read these verses again. So here we get a little more detail about Lamech and his attitude. So Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, so here is a a poem. So again, this speaks to you know their creativity, their ability to you know speak a poem, write a poem, whatever form it was found in. And so he says to his wives, "Listen to what I say." And what does he brag about having done? The end of verse twenty-three. Okay. Now, we don't know, there's some commentators that think this is referencing two people, that he's killed a man for wounding him and a young man for striking him. That, that word young man really means a child, so it's almost like maybe he's killed an adult and a child. Some think it's just a poetic way, you know, a parallelism where you're just saying the same thing two different ways like we see a lot in poetry. So it could just be referring to killing one person. Um, but why does he kill this person or these people? What's his grievance against them? Yeah, wounding him uh, or, or striking him. And, and we're not told, was this a physical wounding? Did someone try to harm him in some physical way? And so it was self-defense. It doesn't seem so much the case because he's bragging about it. Um. I almost wondered, you know, why is he speaking to his wives? Why is he telling them this? You know, what was this, you know, was there a sense of maybe this young man or this this person was trying to take one of his wives or something like that, and that hurt him in that sense, and so he took vengeance. Whatever the case is, we can speculate, but we see this vengeful attitude, this attitude of revenge of, look, if you harm me, then you're going to be killed. Um, is, is his attitude. Um, it's interesting, too, in verse 24, he references God's promise to Cain that if anybody hurt him, if anybody killed him, they would receive sevenfold what Cain's punishment was, okay? And he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then my revenge basically is 77-fold. So if someone harms me, I'm going to return to them 77-fold what they do to me. So it's almost him saying, well, God is only going to do sevenfold, but I'm going to go even further and go 77-fold. So you see the, the pride, you see the violence in this man. It's likely, you know, it mentioned uh, Tubal-Cain, one of Lamech's sons. He was a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. They're probably tools that he made, but also what, what may he have made out of bronze and iron? Weapons, right? And you see the increasing violence and corruption leading up to the flood. So it's not hard to think that, um, that there were swords, that there were weapons that were used that increased that violence. In fact, this poem is called The Song of the Sword by a lot of people because of that. So he's, he's bold, he's prideful, he's vengeful. If you so much as, I mean, it's just this attitude of if you so much as look at me the wrong way, I'm going to put you to death. So it's just this revenge, this, this violence that he has. And it's fitting that, um, it's fitting, I think, to contrast Lamech's words of vengefulness with Jesus' words of forgiveness in Matthew 18. And maybe this is Jesus calling back to even this specific text as he talks to Peter. But Jesus said, it says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay. So maybe Jesus is referencing this. Look, whereas Lamech promised a 77-fold vengeance on anyone that wronged him, the call of believers is to offer a 77-fold 
forgiveness, right? To not, when people wrong us, to lash out, to be violent toward them, but to forgive them, okay? So I think that's interesting to see that tie. You know, that's a passage we're very familiar with in Matthew 18, but I don't know if we always think of it in terms of this passage and and see the contrast with Lamech and his violence and his vengefulness, okay? So basically what we see here, again, a focus on um, just the increasing corruption of Cain's line, which again continues up to the flood, where God looks and says the whole earth is just full of violence and wickedness. All people think of is to do wrong. We see that starting here with Cain. Um, we see a focus again on human achievement. But then we come to verse 25 and 26. We spent several verses on Cain's line, but here we just see a couple to wrap up chapter 4. And then, of course, chapter 5 lays out more information about Seth's line. But we see here in verse 25 a contrast between Cain's line and, and this, this line of Seth. So Adam knew his wife again, and she abhor a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth is born. His name simply means appointed or granted, just like Eve says. God's appointed or granted me another son to take the place of Abel. We talked last week about how when Cain was born, Eve's exclamation was almost her thinking, here's the promised seed already that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And those hopes were likely dashed pretty quickly when she saw the sinfulness of Cain, even as he was a young man or young child. Um, With Abel, again, his name meant vanity. So maybe by the time of Abel, her hope of a promised seed had failed, but maybe she saw Abel's righteousness, his faith, his dependence upon the Lord, offering that acceptable sacrifice. Maybe those hopes in Eve's uh, mind were restored. And that's what it seems to be. That seems to be the state of things when Seth's born. It's almost like, hey, Abel is that one that the promised seed is going to come through, but now he's been killed, but now God's given me and granted me another son to take the place of Abel. And really what we see biblically is that's the case. Through Seth is through whom Jesus comes, right? That's uh, Noah comes through Seth, and of course his sons were all descended from Seth as well. So you see this picture here of Cain's line, this godless line, again, this offspring of Satan, those who are trusting themselves, trusting, you know, following after sin, and those who are putting their faith in God. And what you see here is that Seth has a son named Enosh, which means humanity uh, or frailty could be the idea there. So it seems as though Seth, as he names his son, realizes just how frail the human condition is uh, and seems to have faith in God. And it's interesting that note at the end of 26, that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that phrase mean? At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's at least a couple ways we could maybe take it. Absolutely, yeah, you see it in the New Testament. You know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's definitely, and the ESV definitely reads that way as, this is when people started to see their need for God. You know, you imagine as violence is increasing and there's fear of, hey, Lamech's out there, and he's got swords, and he's going to take me out. God, help us. Like, there might be a sense of their turning to God in faith. Um, and absolutely, I think that's, that's absolutely 
part of the perspective. Is there any different translation of that phrase? Any other versions that you guys have? Okay, proclaim the name of the Lord. So there's an idea of not just calling upon him, but tell, you know, they're trusting him, they're proclaiming it to others. Absolutely. There's one other aspect that this could be referencing. I'm not sure if any other versions draw this out. Does anyone have anything different? Worship? Okay, so that's the idea yeah, of trusting God, calling out to him. Absolutely. There's one other aspect. And again, I don't know if any, I can't remember if any translations actually lay it out this way, but um, so I read some commentators, they said it could even be translated that people began to be called by the name of the Lord. So what's that idea, to be called by the name of the Lord? Yeah, they're, they're identifying as we're trusting God. They're set apart right. It's almost a preview of what we see with Abraham and with the people of, of Israel that they're called by, you know, Israel, they're called by God's name. They're followers of, of Yahweh. They're followers of God. And even today, we're called Christians because we're followers of Christ, right? There's even an aspect of maybe this was a derogatory way that people in Cain's line or unbelievers referred to those who were trusting God, right? Those little God followers, right? That's how the term Christian was originally used, was their little Christ. They're it was meant to be derogatory, but they took it as, hey, that's a badge of honor. We'll be a follower of Christ all day. We'll be a little little Christ. That's a, you know, it's not a put down. It's actually what we are. And so it could be that this aspect as well. But what you see is that during this time, there's at least a revived sense of there, there's a God that we need to put our hope and our trust in and, you know, pray to and, and, and seek guidance from. So you see that through the line of Seth, this renewed uh, focus upon the Lord, calling to Him, trusting Him, worshiping Him, maybe even being identified by Him, proclaiming Him, as you said, Dan. Uh, and again, what we see in leading up to the flood is increasing violence, but what do we find when Noah is on the scene? That he's a man who's righteous, that he's one that is calling upon the name of the Lord, and it seems as though his family is as well. And so this is a preview of that to come, that surely that was passed down, and though maybe others in Seth's line lost that, Noah and his sons, you know, and their, their wives were focused upon the Lord and trusting him, okay? Uh, any other thoughts about what we've seen here in chapter 4 before we wrap up or anything we've covered, you know, up to this point that maybe you've been foggy on? I don't want to open a huge can of worms. We only got a couple minutes, but... So again, what you see in chapter 5 is just a tracing of Seth. It's, it's so cool to go to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, I think it is, where it traces gene, uh, Jesus' li, uh, lineage all the way back to Adam. And so it goes backwards from Jesus, and it says, you know, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so it's just neat to see, you know, there's so much detail in chapter 5 as to the years because... We know it's tracing the lineage to the promised seed of Jesus, okay? So this all sets the scene for Noah's flood and the corruption on earth and, and all of that, okay? Any other thoughts before we wrap up? Yes. Yes.
Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's why when God starts from with Noah, there's a a quick let's set aside a group of people to pour into my truth, to pour into my word, to be a people that are set apart for the world to see, right? So absolutely. I mean, if left to ourselves, that's the route we go because of the because of the fall. We're going to choose corruption. We're going to choose that every every time apart from God intervening and, and granting, you know, as we see him granting Seth, um, you know, him drawing people to himself. So absolutely. Yeah, we say it doesn't take long, but if, and I don't know what the math is, but there's still a lot of hundreds of years that lead up to the flood, right? But still it goes south, like you said, pretty quick within that hundred years is the first murder. So is what it feels like. So Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, there's still pretty close ties. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Oh, you you made the potato salad I didn't like and cut your head off now. Yeah, that's what it was. It was bad potato salad. You heard it here, but no. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of history, and, and it is interesting. We talked about the tell dots in Genesis where there's these markers that seem to be maybe Moses' source material, and so we come to the start of a new one in chapter 5 where it says this is the book of the generation. So up to this point, it seems like creation was maybe God revealing directly to him, and then from uh, chapter 2, I think verse 4 and on is some early oral history or things that maybe were written down. So we find that poem from Lamech in here. So it is interesting to think of that in terms of a lot of this is passed down orally or maybe eventually they wrote it down. But we know God is in the process of preserving that, of inspiring that as well. All righty. Well, we'll wrap up. Uh, I've enjoyed teaching this. Yeah. It's been It's been fun to walk through and take some time and, think through, uh, ask some questions, so I've enjoyed it. I wish we could go all the way to chapter 11. <laughs> I'll zoom, zoom it in. How about that? All right. Well, I'm, I've enjoyed it. Thank you guys for always asking good questions or um, thinking through it with me as we walk through it, so it's been a joy. So let's pray, and then we will transition to our service. God, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for our study of Genesis, uh, even up to this point. So many foundational things, so many things that really help us to look around our world today and see where we've gone amiss, where we've gone astray, and how we can, uh, even today, trust your revealed word and trust your provisions for us. So God, help us to meditate upon what we've studied, and even as we maybe continue through Genesis, reading it ourselves or meditating upon it, um, just open your word up to us, and, and may we stand upon the firm foundation that you're our creator, that you're our provider that you've sent Jesus to be our savior, our redeemer. Um, God, we just thank you for uh, everything we've reflected on uh, through the book of Genesis. So just bless our service here in a little bit, and may we give you all the praise in in everything we do today and, and each day of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name.